We all need to laugh. We choose truth over facts. And now for a perpetual political protest in progress. Judge my physical, mental, suit, my physical as well as my mental suit, fitness. Coffee time. And welcome to the Ammo Can Coffee Social Club Conservative Hour of Power and Enlightenment Salon. I'm Jason Floyd, your host. And again with us today for episode 12 is David Ignell, author and uh, Alaska resident, uh, raised in Juneau, uh, graduated from Juneau Douglas High School, now marrying the prom queen. Uh, congratulations, David. Uh, when is the date for that? Well, uh, you know, it, it's it's uh, it's a date in February, upcoming in, in uh, February. It, yeah, about uh, three three months away, and uh, uh, less than three months. Away. Are, are you going to so. wear a tuxedo, or what, what, have you picked out your 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 <laughs> uniform yet? No, no. Uh, you know, it's it's going to be down here in uh, my uh, my my uh, you know the soon to be Mrs. Ignell. Uh, she she left Juno. Um, uh, I think at the age of 19, uh, she, she fell in love with, uh, there was, there was a band that was playing at the Baranoff hotel and she fell in love with the bass player. And, uh, uh, she, she ended up uh, moving to, uh, to Albuquerque, uh, where she continues to be a resident. Okay. And so, uh, we, we actually met at, uh, her 40th high school, uh, reunion in Juneau. Awesome. And, uh, few years ago so uh, i i've got a we grew up together um she had no idea who i was but um i've got this image of her walking down uh the 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 halls of our junior high school i'm in seventh grade and she's in eighth grade and uh and you were like wow yep yep she's wearing these she's wearing these brown bell bottoms and uh She's got this huge smile on her face. Were they corduroy? Were they corduroy? Bell oh, arms. you know it. Yeah. You know it. <laughs> <laughs> I used to hate those things. My mom would dress me up in cords. She thought they were the fanciest slacks I owned, so she made me wear them all the time. They were brown corduroy. Uh, you could not, you know, if if you tried to do the thinker pose, you know, where you put your your elbow on your lap and your hand on your chin, and it would just, it would like. I don't know. It would scar your arm. Those those corder those corduroy uh-huh. you know uh, nope. textures. Man, it would just imprint there. It was the most uncomfortable thing I had to wear as a kid. But uh, well, I, I got to say, you know, I know I'm a little bit older than you, Jason. But um, you know, gr- growing up in the '70s was was just a uh, was just an incredible time. You know, I, I remember uh, I was out at Boy Scout winter camp uh, in the winter time. It was like, you know, 72 or whatever. And, and it wasn't 72 degrees, believe me, but you know, we were, they were teaching us, they were teaching us how to build ice igloos for survival. And, uh, I remember the word came that the Vietnam war had, had been declared over. And, uh, you know, I was, uh, 11 or 12 at the time and, and just, uh, the impression that that still left on my mind. And, and, um, uh, you know, there was, there was a lot of music in the late sixties and seventies. And, uh, you know, I, I know 
there, you know, there, there was one guy in particular that, uh, our, our family was very close to, uh, who went off to Vietnam to fight. Um, and he came back and he was never the same. And, uh, you know, so there was a lot of, you know, then I was reading, there's, there's a guy by the name of Art Chance. Um, he wrote an opinion piece in, uh, uh, must read Alaska on it was it Thursday or Friday. And I, I don't know, Art never met him before. Apparently at one point in time, he was pretty high up in the department of labor, but he talked about the seventies and how that brought, um, a lot of ex hippies or hippies up to Alaska and how they took over the Democrat party. And he says that they were actually, according to art, they were the, the people who, um, uh, forced, you know, helped force through, they kind of took over the Democrat party and, uh, they were some of the people that were responsible for the passage of the permanent fund. And of course I was, you know, I, I was an early recipient of the permanent fund. I remember the Zobels. I remember, you know, back when you were supposed to get 50 bucks for every year that you'd been an Alaska resident. And, uh, then this group from New York, you know, this couple from New York, the Zobels came up and said, Oh, that's unconstitutional. And uh, I guess the Supreme court agreed with them. And by then it was a political football. So, um, someone in the legislature said, ah, you know, let's give everybody a thousand bucks. And, uh, you know, there, there we went. And, and, uh, I know that, uh, one of my buddies, uh, up, up North now, you know, he talks about this, uh, Democrat legislator from Ketchikan. I think his name was Oral Freeman who, uh, on, you know, on the side was, uh, had a, had a outboard uh, motor repair shop. And he was one of the, he was one of the brainchilds along with, uh, Hammond, you know, Governor Hammond, uh, of the Alaska Permanent Fund. And, and they felt so strongly that, uh, you know, the, the, the money that went into the permanent fund was for the people. And, uh, but anyway, before I get off on another <laughs> tangent here, you're, you're bringing back memories of the, you know, the, the sixties and seventies to me, well, but I, I, I know that I wanted to segue because you said something, uh, in the midst of that, that struck a chord, struck a nerve for me. And it was the comment about the, your, your friend who went to Vietnam and when he came back, he was never the same. And, yeah. you know, uh, while Vietnam was a long way away, uh, the principles that, uh, the free world was fighting for, uh, were fighting for during that time, where it was basically this, it was a proxy war against uh, communist Russia and China. And uh, that proxy war uh, was a war of ideas uh, that turned into a shooting match in a third party country that, that became ground zero uh, for the clash of those ideologies. And, and we saw a similar thing happen in, in Korea. My grandfather was a veteran of, of the Korean conflict, and uh, it was more than a conflict. It was definitely a war. But, um, you know, uh, that that is a great segue into what I'd like to do as we start this 12th episode of our 14-episode special series on the Alaska Grand Jury. And uh, I've been pushing out the podcast to a whole number of um, conservative Facebook groups that I belong to. And um, there's one particular Facebook group that just posted something uh, rather profound. And uh, it was a republication re, re, uh, of a monologue or a, a 
bit of prose, uh, some some uh, some philosophical pondering and and uh, sort of explanation of the times by a gentleman by the name of Rod Dreher, uh, D R E H E R from Prager University. He's the author of a book called Live Not by Lies. And the Facebook group that I'm pulling this fr- that I'm pulling this from is actually called the Alaska Republican Assembly Forum. And it was published as an open letter to eight Republican senators. And so those senators that the letter is is published to is our Senator Bert Stedman, uh, Senator Click Bishop, Senator Gary Stevens, uh, uh, David uh, Wilson, um, Jesse Bjorkman, Kathy Giesel, James Kaufman, and uh, I think Kelly Merrick here. It says Kelly for AK Senate. I think that's Kelly Merrick. And it was CC'd to Senator Mike Schauer, Senator Shelley Hughes, Senator Rob Myers. Um, and, and it says, hello, Sen- uh, Republican senators. And I'm going to take about five minutes here because I, I think this is really important to understand as we, as we go into Chapter 12 and we talk about what it all means. So I'll just, I'll just launch here. Hello, Republican senators. To say I'm disappointed is an understatement. You know why. But maybe you've not realized the seriousness of what you've done. No tinfoil hat here, just truth. You can be part of the solution or part of the problem. Thank you, Senators Shower, Hughes, and Myers, for trying to be part of the solution. I can hardly believe eight of you have cast aside the potential for a Republican majority because of three senators. Instead, you cast your lots with nine Democrats who have a far-left agenda, as illustrated below. This view is held by many Americans and Alaskans, as I am sure you, are, you now uh, know. Turn your head if you wish, but the truth is still there, whether you ignore it or not. Here's the good news for everyday Americans and Alaskans. The secret police are not coming with guns to take you away to a prison camp in a frozen wasteland for speaking out against the government. They do that in communist countries. Here's the bad news for everyday Americans and Alaskans. The secret police aren't coming for you because they don't have to. There are ways to shut you up and keep you quiet that don't involve physical force. The powers that be, and that now includes major corporations, the educational establishment, the media, and the government, can just kick you off the internet, put you on a no-fly list, and bar you from using the banking system. We can describe scenario number one as hard totalitarianism and scenario number two as soft totalitarianism. There are big differences between them, but in the end you arrive at the same place, submission and silence. To grasp the threat of totalitarianism, hard or soft, it's important to understand exactly what it means. According to the famous political scholar Hannah uh, R. Aren't, uh, A-R-E-N-D-T, a totalitarian society is one in which an ideology seeks to displace all prior traditions and institutions with the goal of bringing all aspects of society under control of that ideology. The state literally defines and controls reality, 
truth is whatever the rulers decide it is. And we'll get into that here in chapter 12. Uh, These rulers might say something like, men can have babies, or skin color is more important than character, or the American Revolution was fought not for freedom, but to protect the colonist slave interests, or those who resist a vaccine mandate are enemies of the people, and insist that you not only believe it, but affirm it. If you don't, you might lose your job, your business, and your good name. That dystopian future, of course, is now, and we're only at the beginning of this process. Where does it all lead? To less freedom, that much we know. Again, no guns, no violence. We just go along. Nobody kicks the door down. We open the door and invite them in. The more information the government has about you, and the more the tech sector can see what you're doing and saying online, the easier it is to monitor your behavior. Now, long before the government creates a digital, uh, or how long before a government creates a digital profile of each citizen? And how would the government use that profile? It might go like this. If you do socially positive things, as defined by the government, nothing really changes. You can do whatever you want. Maybe you're even rewarded for good behavior, a faster internet connection, preferred medical treatment, or even the best seats at a concert. You might remember that uh, even from Homer here, where if you did not have a vaccine, they made you sit in the back of the auditorium last year for the uh, Nutcracker Suite. But uh, uh, those who had vaccines could sit in the front of the theater. That's right here in Alaska, folks. If you do socially negative things, again, as defined by the government, you lose privileges. You're pushed to the margins of society. You become a non-person. Sound far-fetched? It shouldn't. It's happening right now in China. It happened in Russia and Eastern Europe not that long ago. Talk to anyone who lived behind the Iron Curtain, and they will tell you we are headed down a dangerous road. No, you say? It can't happen here in the land of the free and the home of the brave. I wouldn't be so sure. Ronald Reagan famously observed that freedom can be lost in a single generation. That's because the human inclination is not towards liberty, but security. Freedom is a value, not an instinct. It entails personal responsibility and risk. Security requires little risk and little personal responsibility, so it comes with little freedom. That's why every new generation must be taught the supreme importance of freedom and develop the strength of character to maintain it. Of course, the people who want to take away our freedom say that they're doing it in the name of compassion for the many victims of oppression. Uh, Unlike the Bolsheviks of of the old Soviet Union, the left of today's America gets its way by shedding blood, not by shedding blood, but by shedding tears. Don't be fooled. The objective is always the same, submission and silence. So how do we stop the drift towards soft totalitarianism? This is not an easy question, but we can create a base from which we can start to act. Let it be this. You may not have the strength to stand up in public and say what you really believe, but you can at least refuse to affirm what you do not believe. You cannot overthrow this soft totalitarianism on your own, but if enough of us find within ourselves, our families, and our communities the means and the courage to live in the dignity of truth, no matter what it costs, we can keep America free. 
Otherwise, we will learn how easy it is to become a totalitarian country, soft or hard. I'm Rod Dreer, author of Live Not by Lies for Prager University. Hello, Republican senators. So, you know, um, and then they accidentally republished it twice. So, so the point here is that uh, we are in the midst of the downfall of a nation and a system. We are in a evolutionary landslide to the lowest denominator of, of uh, security in exchange for liberty, for freedom. And we're letting it happen. We're letting people who were never authorized to dictate the terms by which we uh, uh, find our liberty to tell us where our liberty originates from, and that we, the people, don't have the, the authority to tell the system where our liberty originates from. And that's about as anti-American as it gets, because as any person who has even, even slept through a constitutional uh, class uh, in high school, junior high, or otherwise, will know that this country is founded on the idea of we, the people, by the people, for the people, and according to the Alaska uh, Constitution, all political power is derived from the people or of the people. That means it's not derived from the Supreme Court, which arguably is the weakest of the three branches of government because they don't have the power of the purse and they don't have the power of enforcement. The purse belongs to the legislature and enforcement belongs to the executive. So today we're going to launch into uh, chapter 12, with which, I, if I'm not mistaken, really squarely deals with the Alaska Supreme Court and is timely because of the court's recent actions over the last week, which we alluded to in episode 11. David, you have the floor. Wow. You know, <laughs> how, how do I focus on, on you know, this now? Um, I mean, there's, there's three big things here. First of all, um, this, this post that you just read by this, this Dreher guy, um, you know, Prager University. I, I don't know, you know, anything about Prager University, but what he said was so well said, so well written. Um, you know, there, I, I wrote a few notes down when you were talking and, you know, it, uh, just so many things that he said resonated with me. And so if you got me going on that, we'd, we'd be here for probably days. But, um, you know, he, his, his solution was, you know, I, I think a lot of us have, you know, identified the problems. Uh, we've identified the sy- symptoms. And what we need to really focus on is, is the solution. And, uh, and he got to that. You know, he talked about, how uh, living in, you know, live in the dignity of truth, I think is what he said. And, and when I heard that, I, I thought of the grand jury because that's what the grand jury does. It lives in the dignity of truth. It pursues truth. It pursues justice. And, you know, these are, these are concepts that have been around for, you know, since early biblical times. Uh, talking about truth and justice, going back three, four thousand years, and and this is how we come out of this. The solution is not in guns and bullets; it's in truth and justice. And uh, the grand jury is our is our forum to do that. Now, 
Um, you know, we, we talked in the last episode um, about the Alaska Judicial Council and how it, you know, uh, the, the Alaska Senate handed off the football to them and said, hey, you know, figure out how to get us some yards here with a constitutional amendment. And so we learned how, uh, you know, in the last episode that the Alaska Judicial Council, uh, you know, acknowledged that everything that the Juno Grand Jury had done was was right and correct. But, uh, you know, then, then they just kind of did this shift. You know, they acknowledged the truth and then they slyly shifted over to a uh, over to a solution for the Senate. And they based that solution on error. It wasn't based on anything. Um, and, and they disregarded, uh, you know, they, they disregarded the law. They disregarded the opinions of, of, you know, influential minds for the last two or 300 years. And, and they, they created this, uh, this, this recommendation for rule 6.1 on a fiction. And as I, you know, I, as I start looking at the language of, it seems like the Supreme Court is getting worse and worse. I mean, they take plain language and they butcher it. And, uh, so, you know, that leads into, you know, what we talked about at the beginning, you know, yesterday's show and, and today's show about this new order. Uh, so the Supreme, Supreme Court just came out with a ruling, a new order. It's, uh, they call it Supreme Court Order 1993. And it went into effect December 1st, just five days ago. And uh, I was forwarded this, uh, uh, this order. There, there, there's a fellow who uh, uh, lives on the Kenai Peninsula. And he, he's also, I, I spoke to him this morning for the first time. Uh, his name is Thomas Garber. And uh, he, uh, he, he had a personal experience with the OCS. I know that the OCS has is, is been a real trouble spot for a lot of Alaskans uh, for many, many years. Uh, you know, Jason, you've talked about your, uh, your experience in working for the OCS and then in other, you know, other groups that deal with the OCS. And uh, so Thomas Garber... Uh, you know, the OCS came in, he's got a story and, and I hope that, uh, you know, you, you two will be able to have a podcast on this shortly, but, uh, you know, the OCS came in and interfered with his family, uh, 12 years ago. And, uh, you know, they, his family was able to come out okay through that ordeal. Uh, but since then, Mr. Garber has become an advocate, uh, for, for OCS reform. And uh, a lot of your listeners may recall that uh, back in 2015, there was a representative, I think she was from the North Pole, uh, Tammy Wilson, who uh, went and held hearings throughout the state uh, about OCS. And uh, she, I'm trying to, I'm trying to find out the details on this, but apparently back in 2015, she requested a grand jury investigation. Uh, into uh, the OCS, and that w- it, somehow that transitioned into an investigation by the Alaska Ombudsman uh, to do an investigation under some statutory authority, and they eventually issued this report in 2017, which basically basically confirmed everything that uh, uh, Representative Wilson was saying. 
and they formulated a bunch of uh, recommendations. Well, you know, the problems continue at OCS. And so Mr. Garber uh, was before uh, the, the presiding judge of the uh, third judicial district up in uh, Anchorage, uh, a judge by the name of uh, Morris. And uh, he requested a grand jury investigation of the OCS. And it sounds like the judge was pretty close to uh, granting his request. And there was supposed to be a hearing on December 14th. Uh, and the judge had signaled that he was likely to, to grant the request. And I, find, I found out about this uh, grand jury proceeding uh, just, you know, a week or two ago. And I've been starting to, you know, look at it. And I was going to, you know, file a joinder, you know, requesting as a citizen of Alaska, as, as I'm entitled to do, you know, urging this grand jury investigation of the OCS, because I see some significant problems that were identified in uh, Representative Wilson's letter. So anyway, um, I was going to be, you know, I, I had already made arrangements to talk to uh, Mr. Garber this morning, and uh, I receive an email from him and, and a few other people uh, this morning with this uh, new Supreme Court order attached. And basically what the uh, Supreme Court is saying is that any request for, you know, it, it's a it's a 10-page order. And so I haven't, you know, had an opportunity to, to look at it closely, just kind of skim through it. But uh, the long and the short of it is that Judge Morris up in Anchorage, this hearing was supposed to start on the 14th or supposed to take place on the 14th. He vacated that hearing. He is saying now that he doesn't have the authority to, to issue a, a, or to launch a grand jury investigation into the OCS. He's saying it has to go through the attorney general. And uh, so, you know, the, the, the timing of this, Jason, um, it was 34 years ago that the, and this is what chapter 12 is all about, is, a, is an order from the Supreme Court back in 1988 saying that grand jury reports uh, could be limited. You know, they had to be scrutinized by the judge uh, before they could become public. And we're going to see in chapter 12 how first they issued the order and then a year later they, they, uh, they ruled in a case that uh, uh, the grand jury's investigation into a sexual assault case at Bartlett High School uh, could not, you know, the factual portion of that could not be released. So what we have here now is a, com is a complete rewriting of this unconstitutional 6.1. It's like 10 pages long. And uh, they are now, the Supreme Court is trying to put up another hurdle to prevent grand juries to, to prevent citizens from uh, going to grand jurors, you know, directly and requesting that they investigate. So and, not, and not if I if I understand correctly, what's what's happening just for those who might be a little confused about to uh, procedure and how how court rules now become law uh you're not mistaken if you believed that the legislature was the only body who was empowered by the constitution to create law but as absolutely as this gentleman from prager university writes 
by doing nothing, by remaining silent, we are accepting this lawless activity by the Supreme Court of Alaska. They, in essence, are legislating orders that they are giving the weight of law from the bench without the input of the people. They are not accepting the constitutional statement that the government is of, by, and for the people and wholly derived from the people, and the authority to rule is, above, uh, is, is derived from that authority. They have elevated themselves above the people. And well, in a totalitarian regime, they have become the rulers, and we are the peasants. And, and I'm just, I'm really struck by the arrogance and the hubris of these men and women who presume to rule over us. Yeah, Jason, it, it's, um, I mean, they, they've elevated themselves above the legislature because the legislature can't make these laws, you know, let's call these rules laws because that's what they are. But the legislature can't make these laws against the grand jury because they're prevented by the Constitution. This is what we've been talking about through, you know, the entire theme of my book is that the 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 investigatory powers of the, you know, the investigatory and reporting powers of the grand jury cannot be suspended. In other words, according to the Alaska Judicial Council's own interpretation of that, they can't be hindered or delayed. And this is exactly what's happening. So the legislature, you know, the legislature couldn't pass these laws because the Constitution prevents them. So here you've got the Supreme Court, you know, they're they're elevating themselves above the legislature and they're doing things that are unconstitutional. I mean, it's 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 unfathomable. It's egregious. I mean, I could go on and on with the descriptive words. Well, about let me what's let happened. me let me. Let me read, I used a word, and this is something on the podcast that we like to do is, I like to do is, is read words and the definitions of those for folks who may have heard them, might have a, a sort of an understanding of what it might mean or generally what it means. But let's read the definition of hubris, because I think this really, really um, captures the idea behind the Supreme Court's actions. Uh, in cases like this, in, in instances like this, where they just decide to make up law. Hubris, from ancient Greek, Greek uh, uh, hubris, pride, insolence, outrage, or less frequently, hybris, describes a personality quality of extreme or excessive pride or dangerous overconfidence, often in combination with arrogance. The term arrogance comes from the Latin adrogar, meaning to feel that one has a right to demand certain attitudes and behaviors from other people. To arrogate means to claim or seize without justification, to make undue claims to having, or to claim to seize without right, to ascribe or attribute without reason. The term Pretension is also associated with the term hubris, but is not synonymous with it. So, 
to call the the act of the Supreme Court hubris to be acting with hubris really I think is is a very accurate uh, definition of a dangerous overconfidence and arrogance uh, feeling that they have the right to demand certain attitudes and behaviors from other people which which again goes to point that this court has elevated itself above the people and it's their sole purpose to serve the people, not to rule them and or rule over them. And, and this decision um, flies in the face of what the founders intended for this nation and for our state. Well, absolutely. But, you know, in a way, I'm, I'm, uh, I mean, this, this, um, this order that they just issued, um, you know, as bad as it is, it, it, it's not entirely unexpected. It didn't come as a huge surprise to me. I mean, these, this court and, and the, the officials that they protect are running scared. Uh, they're desperate. Um, this, this order was a direct reaction to the efforts of the, of the, of David Haig and the people in, and the good people of Kenai, uh, with respect to his grand jury investigation. Uh, my requested investigation in Juneau and, and Thomas Garbert's requested investigation in Anchorage. And, um, you know, they, you know, it's funny because the title of my, uh, uh, chapter 12 is the Alaska Supreme court follows suit and ventures out onto very thin ice. Uh, you know, venturing out into thin ice is something that they did back in 1988. So have they and broken think, through that ice with this order? I think they just, I think they just broke through it because the, the, the thing that they've done now is they have contradicted um, a lot of things that were said by uh, in prior decisions. Uh, their rules contradict statutes, from what I can see, Alaska statutes, um, and you know prior representations by the Alaska Judicial Council. Uh, Council. And, th- you know, this is one of these things that, you know, lies beget more lies. And, you know, that, that line out of that play, you know, oh, what a tangled web uh, we weave when we first, uh, you know, try to deceive. And uh, they have put themselves in a tangle here. And, uh, you know, it, it's just, it, it's going to... Uh, outrage more and more people. And I think that, um, this is going to be the, you know, cause what, what this does is, you know, what they did 34 years ago, um, was 34 years ago. I mean, you know, the, a lot of people, you know, a lot of citizens of Alaska today weren't sit, you know, weren't, weren't around back in 1988, but what they've done today has made what they did back in 1988, uh, relevant today. I mean, it's, it's made it current and now it's, it's shown a pattern. It's shown a pattern of, uh, disrupting, of suspending, of hindering, of delaying a grand jury now, uh, by the Supreme court. So they, uh, I think they broke through the ice, Jason. Uh, I, I really do. 
Well, why don't we go ahead and break the ice on, uh, we've well broken the ice, I guess, on Chapter 12. Why don't you launch into that? And then uh, if we have some co- follow-up comment, we can we can weigh in on that. And we've only got two more chapters to go, folks. Thank you for sticking with us, uh, Chapter 13 and 14. And now, I, you know, depending on how uh, the fallout from this order, um, I guess, falls out, uh, you might have to write an epilogue. Um, to your 14-page book uh, to add some more of this this current context? Well, yeah, a couple things there, Jason. Uh, um, yeah, we are, we are now uh, page 98 uh, of 118-pages. So, yeah, we're, we're in the home stretch here. And, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, you know, what, what's fascinating to me about this uh, – uh, this 2015 grand jury investigation uh, requested by Representative, uh, uh, former Representative Tammy Wilson, and and the current one being represented by Thomas Garber, is that it 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 it's um, you know I have become aware of of these subsequent grand jury investigations that you know I was interested in. So you know it looks like there has been some attempts. Uh, and I hope that listeners uh, who know of other grand jury uh, investigatory attempts will will let you or or let me know because um, you know I, I did think that this might be a first edition of my book. Uh, I knew that we were missing. You know, I just I, I've talked about this earlier on your show. I, I just you know didn't know what investigations have been attempted. Uh, over the last 30 years, ever since the Soleri case that we're going to talk about today. So, you know, maybe there'll be a, a, a second edition. Maybe there'll be another chapter. Um, I was thinking today that, uh, you know, after talking with Mr. Garber for an hour, that I need to write a book on uh, the OCS and uh, the things that they have done and uh, how the state has stifled investigations uh, into the OCS, uh, something Tammy Wilson said was that it was all about money. So this ombudsman report from 2017, it focused on symptoms, but it didn't focus on what uh, Representative Wilson was saying might be the, the root cause. And that's all this money that's pouring into the, the government from the federal government, pouring into the state government to uh, basically incentivize the OCS to to grow its, uh, you know, grow its uh, power over the people and to get involved in maybe cases that they shouldn't be getting involved in and, and to take kids away from families uh, that, uh, you know, as you've told me, Jason, it's the goal, it's, it's the written policy of the uh, OCS to keep families together not break them apart, but I'm starting to hear of, of cases where they're actually incentivized to break families apart. But we'll leave all that for, uh, for another day, another time. And, uh, unless you have anything else you want to add here, Jason, I'll, I'll get going with chapter 12. The good thing is it's only, I think it's only five pages, so it shouldn't take too long. All right, go ahead and launch. Okay. Just had a sip of water there. Chapter 12, the Alaska Supreme court follows suit and ventures out onto very thin ice. A year and a half following the publication of the AJC's 1987 report, Alaska Supreme Court Justices Matthews, Rabinowitz, and Moore followed suit and forced through the adoption of Criminal Rule 6.1.
This new rule squarely imposed judicial control over the reporting powers of the Alaska Grand Jury. The rule adoption was contained in Supreme Court Order 938, dated September 8, 1988, with an effective date of January 15, 1989. The two other judges on the Alaska Supreme Court, Justices Burke and Compton, disagreed with their colleagues and dissented. They were of the view that Criminal Rule 6.1 violated Article 1, Section 8 of the Alaska Constitution. Justices Burke and Compton weren't pushovers. At the time of SCO 938's adoption, Justice Edmund W. Burke had sat on the Alaska Supreme Court since his appointment by Governor Jay Hammond in 1975. He had been Chief Justice from 1981 to 1984. Justice Alan T. Compton had sat on the Alaska Supreme Court since his appointment by Governor Jay Hammond in 1980. He was Chief Justice of the Court from 1995 to 1997. Clearly, their views were well regarded and their opinions on the constitutionality of these proposed criminal rules carried some weight. Alaska's ordinary citizens have been given little explanation why the Supreme Court made such a controversial move in adopting Criminal Rule 6.1 over the objection of Justices Burke and Compton. On the surface, there was nothing forcing the Supreme Court to pass SCO 938. The situation wasn't akin to a dispute that parties petitioned the Supreme Court to decide. Even in those situations, the Supreme Court has discretion whether to hear the case and issue a ruling. There must have been a very compelling undisclosed reason for the three judges to be so bold and bring the reputation of the Supreme Court so far out on the thin ice. SCO 938 has the appearance of legislation disguised as a court rule for the purpose of avoiding a constitutional amendment. The adoption of Criminal Rule 6.1 raises significant questions regarding the integrity of of the Alaska Supreme Court and whether its judicial function was compromised by political interests. This stigma persists among the Alaskans today, as concerns of political favoritism at the highest levels of the Alaska court system abound among citizens interviewed in advance of this study. In Senate Resolution Number 5 AM, the Alaska Senate had requested the Alaska Judicial Council to study the grand jury's investigatory and reporting power to make recommendations and to consider a possible amendment to the state constitution to strengthen due process considerations. Whether it was appropriate for the legislative branch to request help from the Alaska Judicial Council in overturning a clause in the Alaska constitution is beyond the scope of this study. The answer to that question may depend on what branch of government the Alaska Judicial Council falls under. For readers unfamiliar with the council's membership, The executive branch appoints three members who serve staggered six-year terms. The Alaska Bar Association appoints three members who also serve staggered six-year terms. The council is then chaired by the Chief Justice of the Alaska Supreme Court, who is also a member of the Alaska Bar Association, meaning the Bar Association essentially controls Alaska's judiciary. In the author's previous experience with the AJC, the Chief Justice has dominated its public proceedings. For purposes of this study, 
What is important is that in 1985, all 20 Alaska senators understood they were powerless to undermine the reporting power of the Alaska grand jury without a constitutional amendment. Alaska citizens may forever be in the dark about the primary forces within the Alaska Judicial Council, the Supreme Court, and the legislature that were responsible for hindering the power of the Alaska grand jury without a constitutional amendment. 35 years have passed since the AJC's 1987 report was issued, meaning many witnesses have either passed on or their memories have faded. The most reliable evidence would likely be documentary. What is indisputable, however, are the big gaps in the known timeline, suggesting there was likely significant internal dissension between the supporters of the AJC's 1987 report and those who believe criminal rule 6.1 was unconstitutional. To recap this timeline, Senate Resolution Number 5 AM had passed on August 5, 1985. According to repertorial power, the AJC completed a draft of its report in February 1986 and provided it to the editors of the Alaska Law Review at Duke Law School. Repertorial Power was published in the Alaska Law Review in December 1986. The AJC published its final report in February 1987. The Alaska Supreme Court didn't, ad didn't adopt the proposed criminal rules until September of 1988, one and a half years after AJC's 1987 report was published and two and a half years after its initial draft. Does this extended passage of time suggest considerable dissension behind closed doors at the Alaska Judicial Council and Alaska Supreme Court? What was Justice Rabinowitz's role as chairman of the AGC in the outcome of its report? Were there any state politicians the three Supreme Court judges were anxious to protect? Were any of those Supreme Court judges under the undue influence of state politicians? As Judge Vanderbilt had astutely pointed out in Camden, quote, what is not known and understood is likely to be distrusted, unquote. What is known, however, is that Justices Burke and Compton wouldn't budge on their convictions of unconstitutionality and their three colleagues decided to recklessly press forward on the dangerous ice. Following the controversial adoption of SCO 938, it didn't take long for the three judges on the Alaska Supreme Court to apply their newly imposed restrictions on the reporting power of the grand jury to protect public officials and leave the public in the dark. In late 18, excuse me, in late 1989, an Anchorage grand jury investigated the conduct of, a, of the local school district, police department, and district attorney's office in connection with their roles in handling a teacher's sexual relationship with students at Bartlett High School. Like their fellow grand jurors in Juneau, the Anchorage grand jury prepared a substantial report of its findings and recommendations in March of 1990, criticizing the actions of the school district. Much to the chagrin of the Anchorage Grand Jury and local citizens, the Alaska Supreme Court su suppressed substantial portions of this report, interpreting Criminal Rule 6.1 in a very liberal manner that absolutely shredded the constitutional, constitutionally protected common law rights of the Alaska Grand Jury. 
The three judges of the Supreme Court majority built an addition to their teetering house for bad law upon the melting ice. The fundamentally unsupported AJC 1987 report, which they labeled, quote, a comprehensive and scholarly report, unquote. The publicly available facts in the O'Leary case, available from online sources, can be summarized as follows. In May of 1989, Anchorage school officials learned that a 44-year-old teacher had a sexual relationship with a 17-year-old student and possibly with at least one more student. School officials confronted the teacher who resigned, but the officials did not report the matter to the police. The police didn't learn about the situation until September when a youth services agency alerted them. The police raided school district officials on October offices on October 3rd and Bartlett High School offices on October 6th. The school district quickly sued the police about the raid and was joined by the ACLU and the NEA. The raids produced documents showing that the teacher received a monetary bonus and a promise of secrecy from the district in exchange for his resignation. The agreement prohibited the teacher from teaching in Alaska, but left him free to teach in other states. Following their investigation, the Anchorage Grand Jury issued a report which addressed the actions of the participants and criticized administrators from Bartlett High School in the Anchorage School District. Unlike the Sheffield report, Rule 6.1 was now in effect meaning the Superior Court judge was required to review the Anchorage Grand Jury report under those guidelines before it could be made public. The Superior Court judge provided a copy of the report to the individuals named in the report and gave them an opportunity to request a hearing. While the judge was conducting this review, the Anchorage police chief filed an application claiming Rule 6.1 was unconstitutional. The police chief was joined by two Anchorage papers, the grand jury, and two prosecutors. The Superior Court finished its judicial review of the report and issued a final order on August 7, 1990, finding the report was acceptable and could be published on August 21. The interested parties named in the report appealed, and the publication was delayed pending the Supreme Court's decision. After oral arguments, the Supreme Court ordered that some portions of the report be released, but required the names of the interested parties to be deleted. The Supreme Court also halted the publication of some 70 pages, providing the factual background of the dispute. At that point, elections involving the Anchorage Municipal Assembly and school board seats were just two weeks away. The actions of the Alaska Supreme Court kept the media and voters in the dark as to all the facts and the role of certain public individuals. One year later, in August of 1991, and in a three to two decision, the Alaska Supreme Court issued its final decision and opinion in the O'Leary case. The three Supreme Court judges judges prevented the names and extensive factual background from being published even though the Superior Court judge had specifically found that the new hurdle in Rule 6.1 of substantial evidence had been met by the Anchorage Grand Jury. Justices Burke and Compton 
objected on constitutional grounds as they had with SCO 938. But this time they issued a dissenting opinion. They highlighted the clear mandate of Alaska's founders at the Constitutional Convention who overwhelmingly rejected the notion that the common law investigatory and reporting power of the grand jury could be limited. They contrasted the competing opinions expressed by delegates Buckaloo and Helenthal, and then pointed to the, quote, overwhelming margin, unquote, that approved the expanded powers. In their own words, Justices Burke and Compton felt Rule 6.1, quote, mocks, unquote, the clear constitutional intent of Alaska founders, stating, quote, this procedural rule is not the least bit deferential to the anti-suspension clause. Indeed, it mocks it. If the language of Section 8 is not clear enough, the rejection of Delegate Buckaloo's objections to it persuade me that the constitutional debate has both addressed and answered the question whether the anti-suspension clause is to be construed restrictively or expansively. Only an expansive construction is consistent with its plain language and the debate and vote. The grand jury, and not the courts, can choose matters on which it reports and recommends, and the manner in which to do so. Its constitutional power shall never be suspended by the overlay of cumbersome procedures which provide for private judicial adjudications and review of whether the report it is to publish adversely reflects on someone or otherwise violates his or her constitutional rights, unquote. Justices Burke and Compton also raised the issue addressed previously in this chapter with respect to the double standard of protection given to public figures but denied to criminal defendants like Mr. Jack. The dissenting judges specifically asked why the public officials named in the Anchorage Grand Jury Report should be entitled to more protection under the Alaska Constitution than individuals identified in criminal indictments who are given no opportunity to be heard. Quote, I fail to understand why the reputation interest of some persons is to be protected by criminal rule 6.1 procedures, while the same interest of another receives no protection. The court provides no guidance, for it fails to articulate why the reputation interest of some persons is of constitutional magnitude, while the reputation interest of others is, apparent, is not apparently so elevated, unquote. In O'Leary, the public officials criticized by the Anchorage Grand Jury's report had been given the opportunity to testify, defend their actions, and point to other evidence in their favor, just like Mr. Sheffield had been given. In both cases involving public officials, the grand juries heard both sides, and those named in the reports had an opportunity to be heard. Regardless of the politics that were involved, in the opinion of this author, it was inexcusable for the three Supreme Court justices who forced SCO 938 and the O'Leary decision down the public's throats to feel more compelled to pr protect public figures up for re-election than presumably innocent citizens like Mr. Jack facing a lifetime in prison. Recent commentaries continue to support the principle that grand juries serve an important function 
by publicly reporting on non-criminal indiscretions of named public officials. In 2000, Dr. Kading Herringer, professor of politics, constitutional law, and civic engagement at Wake Forest University, followed the thoughts of Judge Vanderbilt 50 years earlier when she wrote in her book, The Special Prosecutor in American Politics, quote, the line between traditional public corruption and unethical but not criminal behavior is unclear. The fact that public officials are not criminals does not necessarily mean that they are ethically fit to hold public office. And criminal investigation encourages us to focus on the first question instead of the second. More effective special grand juries can help the American people focus on the key question of whether a government official has crossed an ethical line and violated the public trust. In 2007, Michael Buckwald, currently an attorney with the U.S. Department of Justice, echoed these sentiments in his article, Of the People, By the People, For the People, The Role of Special Grand Juries in Investigating Wrongdoing by Public Officials. Mr. Buckwald said, quote, Public officials owe a fiduciary duty to the public and therefore must comply with a more demanding standard of conduct than that required by the criminal law. Where official misconduct or violation of the public trust does not rise to the level of criminal activity, it should be worthy of some sanction nonetheless, such as removal from office. This heightened standard of conduct should apply equally to elected and appointed officials. Similarly, there is an equally compelling public interest to make any official misconduct public knowledge, even if it is not criminal. Grand jurors, as lay citizens unconnected to any branch of the government, are the ideal individuals to reprimand public officials for behavior that is wrong, yet perhaps not criminal. When the individual affected is a public official, a report on his misconduct in office would be fully justifiable. Public servants, especially elected officials, apply position, occupy positions of public trust. And as trustees of the public welfare, these officials assume a risk that they will be the subject of close scrutiny and public comment, unquote. Applying these standards, ordinary citizens like Mr. Jack, should be entitled to even more protection at the grand jury level than government officials like Mr. Sheffield. Hopefully one day soon, the Alaska Supreme Court will learn to see, to see it that way too and unwind the considerable damage its internal policy decisions have wrought. And that is the end of Chapter 12, Jason. Well, it, as, as, we, as we talk about tools that are available to the public and holding their their public officials accountable i can't help but reflect back on my own experience trying to organize a recall effort for uh the late gary knopp who was a house representative here in in the central peninsula and having to navigate the statutory um, restrictions or definition on how one could proceed to petition their government for redress of grievances, which, which by its definition, that's really what a recall petition is all about. 
is you have one of these politicians who has maybe that what they have not done is is done something that would amount to uh, a criminal act, but their ethics have uh, placed them in a position of no confidence concerning the public trust and their management of that trust. And it was interesting through that process to learn how the legislature had taken what was pretty much straightforward language provided by the framers of our constitution and created this convoluted um, barrier ridden process to upset and thwart and stop the people from using the recall process uh, for the purposes to which it was designed. And, and uh, not unlike what's happening today with the grand jury and over the last 32 years of, of uh, judicial activism in their rulemaking, uh, how the powers that be circle the wagons and, and are ever uh, seeking ever greater ways to insulate themselves from scrutiny and from accountability and then to be able to exercise freely, uh, you know, uh, from their high position with inexhaustible resources provided by the public purse and, uh, and the power that comes from being a person of, of uh, high status and name renown and access uh, to, to the resources and the networks of people that pull the strings on our laws and uh, our courts and really uh, the economy of our state and how there, there seems to be this very stark contrast between the class, the class of the public employee or official public official and the rest of us. And uh, this, 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 uh, I think this chapter really highlights that well. Well, you know, and, and I, you know, I, I, I published this book, I finished the book, um, you know, published it on my website at the end of August and then uh, went and um, beginning of uh, September sent in my request to the Juno presiding judge for the special grand jury to investigate this. And, and this, this decision uh, this SCO Supreme Court Order 938 is part of my requested grand jury investigation for them to subpoena the documents. I mean, I'm very curious, uh, you know, what kind of behind the scenes stuff was going on uh, at the uh, Supreme Court and within the Alaska Judicial Council during that two or three year period. Well, that's interesting uh, for- that you say was because now I think you have to revamp that and say is what is well, going on. <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, the crazy thing is in reading my last paragraph, I mean, I, I you know, I may have wrote, written this, uh, uh, this chapter back, you know, I may have finished it around early August. And I, I concluded that chapter 12 with, with one of hope that the Supreme Court would, would realize its errors and unwind that considerable damage. And then reading that today for the first time in in a few months, and, and with the knowledge of what they just did, it's like getting I mean, it kicked right in the feels. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it's it's like uh, no, the, these these you know, and it was it was interesting because I didn't uh, uh, you know I started supporting a constitutional convention uh, in mid September. And, uh, you know, and it, 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 it came after I, after I asked the chair of that group, Defend Our Constitution, Bruce Patello, he gave a presentation in Juneau and I asked him, well, you know, cause he, he, you know, it was a message of fear. And I have to admit, I had some of the same fears, but I asked him, well, what do we do about Supreme Court judges that don't follow the law? And I brought up Mr. Jack's case. Right. And he, he had no answer for that. Yeah. And then, then how I read about it, you know, it was covered, that meeting was covered by the Juno Empire, and it was when I read the next morning how, you know, the fact that my question was, was completely ignored, that's when I came out against, you know, in favor of the CONCON. And, and so, you know, and, and since then now, over the last two months, I've, I've been increasing my advocacy for we've got to change the way we select our judges. Well, because- con- consider this. I mean, all when, when you take it all as one big basket of uh, sort of um, actions taken by our founders, the, the, the forefathers of this great state and of our great nation, that they would create the public initiative process. They would create the referendum process. They would create the recall process they would create the grand jury process you know how paranoid were they about an out of control bureaucracy and the bureaucrats and technocrats basically taking the reins of power and running away with them how how, you know because really those all of those are tools that reaffirm and clearly establish the dominant role of governance, uh, uh, self-governance by, for, and with the people. And, and, uh, and it seems like every single one of these tools has been eroded to the point where uh, really uh, uh, originally we, earlier in the series, we talked about how the court jester is telling the king what to do, um, that, that we have... And this latest decision by the by the Supreme Court um, really uh, really is a bad joke, you know. Being told by some very high minded jesters who are basically giving the people the middle finger and saying, "Look, you guys, you guys, uh, you guys need to just shut up, sit down, and and accept what comes." Kind of like the uh, the gentleman from Prager University. You know, so eloquently identified it. You know that his uh, the quote we gave at the beginning of the show so eloquently identified. And go ahead. Yeah, there there is you know a couple things I, I I meant to bring this up a few episodes ago, uh, but I was I was researching um, I, I you know the, the the transcript of the Constitutional Convention. It's four thousand pages long. Okay, you know it. <laughs> It, it's, it's a transcript of everything that was said on the floor for about, you know, three months in the middle of winter up in Fairbanks back in 1955 through 1956. And, and uh, but I was researching a, a related issue on this. Actually, I was I was I was starting to write an article uh, 
you know, talking about the, the Pendergast court and, and Pendergast was a political machine down in Missouri, uh, you know, 80 some years ago. But, um, uh, I was starting to write about that. And, but when I was doing my research in the, in the transcript of the uh, constitutional convention, I, you know, Yule Kilcher, we, we've talked about him, uh, on, you know, during this podcast from time to time and his importance in preserving the grand jury uh, during the, the debate that we covered in, in Chapter 8. Well, I saw in there where, you know, Kilcher was one of the delegates who really pushed for uh, having constitutional conventions uh, every, every 10 years. I mean, he actually, I saw where he introduced a bill uh, into, onto the floor of the constitutional convention where there would be an automatic constitutional convention every 10 years. And he was the guy that was pushing it. And um, so, you know, to, you know, you, you talked, Jason, just, you know, a few minutes ago about these, these checks that were put into the constitution, you know, referendum, constitutional amendment. And, you know, now, you know, we, we've been, you know, 60, you know, 65 years without a without a new constitutional convention. And we see the Supreme Court of Alaska clamping down on the people's rights, the people's powers, which, you know, is set forth in 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 Article one of the of the Constitution, that the Constitution is, you know, by the people for the people. And now it's just what you've talked about, whether you call it hubris or whatever you want to call it, pretense. Um, you know, you've got these five judges who have usurped control over the Alaska people. Well, a good, uh, a good example of that, another good example of that is how when, when we talk about public initiatives, right, uh, these groups of concerned citizens get together and they'll, they'll go ahead and write legislation because the legislature is unwilling or unable to do so concerning a, a specific idea or, or concern. And, but then that is, is subject to, to judicial review, and uh, and review by the Division of Elections, and some groups, you know, the 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 uh, that are proposing things that the status quo, sort of the system of the status quo does not like, will get shut down. There'll be all kinds of barriers presented to them that no, we we're not going to prove that. We're not going to prove that. We're not a you know your language is too broad. But then you have things like Proposition Two, which brought in rank choice voting which was actually uh, several different initiatives written into one uh, initiative, which statutorily is not supposed to happen. But uh, then the courts weigh in and say, no, no, that's, uh, that's okay. That's okay. Yep. And, and yep. Now, now we can see in a state that has traditionally been uh, very conservative, very right-leaning, um, it's had its leftist moments, but uh, but – I guess for the most part has been very right leaning. We now have a Democrat uh, representative in the House, and we I would argue two Democrats posing as Republicans in in the Senate. Um, we have a grossly unpopular um, governor that apparently everyone loves. I have not found a person yet who I know who loves Governor. Dunleavy 
and doesn't have some issue with him. Now, I'm not quite sure how that all comes to comes to fruition in a system that's not rife with corruption, where you end up going from a very right-leaning state to a very leftist state in one, basically one election cycle, and without um, some very uh, uh, powerful people in the background pulling strings. And, and it just begs the question, you know, the, the role of the courts in their, in their adjudication of, of that question about the, the, the uh, ballot initiative too, um, you know, it, it shows just how dangerous a politically motivated Supreme Court and court system is because it undermines the very fabric, the foundation of what is the public trust. And, and without the public trust, the Republic fails and we become something different. And I think that's what the PragerU uh, author was saying uh, essentially is that it's soft totalitarianism. It's kind of like that frog in the pot that you talked about, you know, that uh, you just slowly turn the heat up and the frog will happily boil. And that's what's happening to us. Well, and, you know, you, you, you talked, uh, you know, you, you started off this episode by, you know, by reading, you know, that, that, uh, that piece, uh, which was, you know, that letter was addressed to the eight Alaska senators just, just elected in the last uh, couple of weeks, you know, since the reports were certified, who, who went against the party and, uh, you know, they, they, their actions enabled, um, the Democrats to, to take control of all these committee chairs within the Alaska Senate. Now, this seems to me to be an issue that is, is tailor made for a grand jury investigation, uh, to use its subpoena power to start subpoenaing records of these, uh, of these various legislators, uh, these various senators who have, um, you know, I mean, again, I'm I'm not a Republican, so you know, it's not like I'm I'm marching up on the you know standing up on the Republican soapbox. But if if a if a if a if a candidate holds himself out to be a, a Republican, and then does things to go against that you know that party, that ought to be something that should be investigated. And, uh, you know, the same thing with, uh, with Governor Dunleavy, you know, it, it, you know, I hear from people and I, you know, I, I hear a lot of complaints about him too, coming from Republicans and, uh, you know, how he started off, you know, being, being, you know, kind of, uh, uh, advancing some Republican policies in his first year, but then he backed away from those. And so, yeah, what, what kind of deals, uh, are being done behind the scenes. And, and what we've seen, you know, we're in chapter 12 and we've seen multiple times in, in previous chapters where, uh, you know, well-recognized authorities in the United States have, have said what is not known is distrusted. And when people, I think I was, uh, I, I think it was maybe the Washington Post. Um, you know, I have a subscription to the Washington Post and, and the New York Times and I think it was in the Washington Post within the last three weeks where they did a poll. I think it was a poll out of University of Chicago and uh, something, you know, a majority of Americans uh, distrust the government. 
you know, and, and yeah, there's more Republicans that distrust the, you know, the government than, than Democrats, but it was still something like 40% or, you know, close to 50% of Democrats in some categories distrusted government. This is what we've come to. Well, and, and, yeah. and to that point, we, we, in Alaska, when we bring it back home, we look at, we look at things like the binding caucus and Mike shower, you know, talking about how he was taken into a room essentially and told how it was going to be. And he's like, that's not, what I was elected for, and I, I don't think I can do that. Um, and, uh, you know, we have other instances of corroborating, you know, stories from other folks who've run, who've had similar experiences. And then we look at the caucus itself, meeting behind closed doors, which isn't it curious that those folks exempt themselves from the public meetings laws of Alaska, where you can't have any public meeting that, uh, that is closed to the public. You can't have any meeting of three or more people uh, for any deliberative body that is closed to the public. But yet these, these caucuses caucus privately behind closed doors and uh, they make up all sorts of decisions and have all kinds of conversations. They're supposed to be there representing us. But when it goes behind the veil, how can we trust that that process is not corrupt? Because lies and deception require uh, secret, uh, um, I guess, the, the opportunity to remain secret until revealed. Because if they were known beforehand, then those who are righteous, those who love the truth, those who stand altruistically for freedom for all— equal protection of the law, um, innocence before guilt, they, they would, they would uh, coalesce to stop them. But we only find out in the 11th hour after all those conversations have, ha- have been had. I mean, this decision from the Supreme Court, you know that there were backroom talks and, and deals and concerns and strategy meetings you know, um, going on to come up with this rule. You know it. You just know it was there. And so how can we trust a system? that is designed to hide the truth from the people and then tell the people, uh, oh, just trust us because we have your interests in mind. Um, but then at the same time, basically neuters us, makes us impotent to act. Well, and, you know, when, when you brought up Mike Shower, and, and uh, I think I've said before and I'll, I'll, on this podcast, and I'll, I'll say it again, I mean... I I, uh, I spent a lot of time in front of the legislature this last winter in Juneau. You know, I, I live right across the bridge there, and you know, walk, I can walk to you know from my house to the Capitol in about 20 minutes. I have a luxury that I know a lot of other people in Alaska don't have, especially you know those up in up in Anchorage who you know we're, we're not connected by the road system. But you know, I, I went there and I testified and I met with these legislators on you know number of times and and I came away with just so much, you know, dismay, disgust, whatever you want to call it. But Mike Shower was the one person uh who I dealt with that I that I had the most hope in. And uh, you know, I, I saw that uh that interview that he had, you know, before you know, during his campaign where he, he talked about being in that room with the, you know, with, with the people who run the caucus and you know, in his mind, he felt that was wrong. You know, it was like, you know, it might be illegal. Um, it, it was certainly, you know, sell, he was selling his vote, uh, you know, for his his constituents. His constituents had elected him to go in and represent their interests. And he felt that he was 
disregarding his duty if he if he joined this caucus. So it, it seems to me a situation that the grand jury was was confronted with back in 1985 with what Sheffield was doing. The laws in Alaska were inadequate at the time, and even there, even former Watergate prosecutor Sam Dash spoke to this point. He says the laws are inadequate. And it seems to me that maybe what we have is we have inadequate laws in Alaska dealing with this caucus. Um, and that's something that should be investigated by the grand jury and recommended. I mean, if, if this is, if this, you know, if this is wrong where, um, you know, there's all this backroom dealing, trading votes, uh, committee chairmanships, control of committees, all this stuff is happening behind closed doors. Maybe that should be made illegal. Maybe we need a recommendation by a grand jury that what's been going on in our legislature now for the last, you know, how many decades is illegal and needs to be stopped and to propose and recommend that the legislature pass rules that be adopted by the legislature, just like they did in the Sheffield case. There's precedent for this. And this is, this is the, the Sheffield investigation is one of the things that, you know, you talked about this going out to, to other states. And if people want to see how a grand jury investigation was done right, you know, read that chapter nine and chapter 10 on the, uh, on the grand jury investigation by, by, you know, 15 residents of Juneau. That's, that's how it's done. They did a report. They, they made recommendations to the legislature and those re- recommendations were followed because the, the, the grand jury has that kind of power. So, um, you know, it just seems like with this letter to the to the eight uh, Alaska Republican Senate, you know, the, the people who call themselves Republicans but have allowed uh, Democrats to come into power of committees, you know, that 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 whole process needs to be investigated. Well, we have uh, gone long in this episode. We are at a minute or a, <laughs> an hour and twenty. Uh, we thank you for hanging in there with us. Uh, looking forward to the last two chapters of David Ignell's book on the Alaska Grand Jury, chapters 13 and 14. Like we've said many times before, share and like this uh, episode and the others with your friends, your family, your circle of influence. And I might suggest we turn up the heat on the frog in the pot ourselves. There's something called the Foundation for Applied Conservative Leadership. Uh, I was able to do a class with them uh, last year. Uh, It was highly informative, very very useful, and I learned a thing or two. I also learned that some of the stuff I'm already doing is part of the strategy that they recommend for getting compliance from uh, out-of-control officials who think that they are above the law, that they are above accountability to their constituents. So keep the pressure on. Subscribe to podcasts like this. Uh, Go read The Alaska Watchman. Go read The uh, Must Read Alaska. Engage with your community. Ask the hard questions and push back against the darkness. You've been listening to the Ammo Can Coffee Social Club conservative hour of power and enlightenment salon. Thank you, everybody.